0: Hello and welcome to The Popcorn Isn't Real. I'm Leif Eric and I'm here with
1: my brother Torvald. Today we're going to be talking about that iconic winter film. You know it, I know it. A blonde young woman watches the warm life and civilization she once knew fade away from high up on her cold, frozen throne, unable to return. Two young men try and ultimately fail to save her from this predicament, and she learns that what she truly needed all along was not to rely on others, but instead to find the strength within. Yes, it's everyone's favorite icy masterpiece, Frozen. That's... 2010 bloody skin peeling off, broken bones sticking out, R-rated horror, chiller, thriller about three friends freezing to death, trapped on a ski lift. (laughs) Everyone knows Frozen.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I'm so excited because today we have a writer, director, producer, uh, the creator of the Hatchet series and of course a uh, writer director of Frozen which we're talking about today and, and an amazing fellow podcaster. Uh, welcome Adam Green to our podcast.
2: Thank you for having me. So happy you could be here. You know, normally I don't I don't do interviews unless it's like right before something is about to come out only yeah. cuz I have my own podcast every week. And uh, so yeah. it's, it's just hard. That makes but sense. Yeah. When my manager was like, "There's a theory that the two guys didn't die in Frozen." I'm like, <laughs> "I got it. I have to hear this." This is one of my favorite theories. I th- I think we actually came
1: up with it. This might be an original, but I fully believe it. <laughs> so I'm I'm excited to see if you uh, if you can confirm or deny it once you've heard all the evidence. <laughs> we try to find
0: sort of like alternate readings of films. A lot of times they sound really ridiculous when we first say them, but then we find some solid evidence by going through the movie to back it up.
2: I love that. Um, (laughs) So I have two films that purposely don't answer questions because they're made to make the audience think, Spiral and Digging Up the Marrow. So normally those are the ones where people are like, so can you you just answer this one thing? (laughs) Normally we don't ever anyone right. involved with the movie we don't answer it because right, once as the filmmaker once we say yes or no then that kind of becomes the answer so we don't ever expect the
0: creator to confirm or deny our theory we just like right. to get a, a reaction
1: <laughs> okay so, we have a theory about this movie that might turn the whole movie on its head actually so the theory is that Everyone survived the movie
0: Frozen. Now, of course, if you've seen it, you know that Joe and Dan, you know, the movie the, the movie would have us believe that they died, but we think that's not what happened. We think they both survived. We think that Joe masterminded a plan where they would fake their own deaths and also punish Parker for something that uh, Joe was mad about. And then we believe that Joe and Dan sort of rode off to the sunset together to go be best friends after this movie was over. And we can back this up with evidence.
1: Okay. Okay, let's go over the story of Frozen. Basically, it's just about three friends who go skiing. They're having a great time until they get stuck on the ski lift as the resort shuts down for a big winter storm that's on the way. And over the next few days, stuck on this ski lift, they starve, freeze, fall down, break their bones, get eaten, peel off their skin. They have a great time. All kinds of bad stuff. They, they you know, generally suffer and die. <laughs> that's, the, that's the movie. So our first evidence that we have is just that
0: uh, Joe and Dan, the very first thing we know about them, this movie tells us, is that they are schemers. The opening scene of the movie starts with them manipulating Parker into going along with a scheme to bribe the chairlift guy so that they can go up without paying any money.
1: Right. They take time in the movie to establish this. Like you said, the entire opening shot of the movie is showing that these two have all kinds of hijinks and plans that they're going to carry out together. I'm with you. (laughs) And I think it's actually important to note as Parker goes and tries to bribe this ski lift, Dan and Joe immediately start discussing like if they can include this guy in their plan. Joe says, no, 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 he's not He's not going to go for it. And then Dan says, yes, he will. He's either going to do that job for a minimum wage, or he's going to do that job for a minimum wage plus a little bit. I mean, I know what I would do. And then he's, And then uh, Joe smiles about it. Like it, it just seems like they're plotting something, right? right? right, right. <laughs> and, and so, uh,
0: of course, the uh, more common interpretation of this scene is just that they're kind of Uh, discussing taking bets almost uh, on if this guy is actually going to let them use the ski lift for free, right? Because you have to buy a pass to use the ski lift to go ski, right? You don't, you bring your own skis, you bring your own snowboard, you bring all your own equipment, you don't have to rent any of that. Really, the only thing you're paying for when you go skiing at a resort is the ski lift pass. And they're trying to get out of doing that.
1: It's established that Joe and Dan know the ski lift operator and have some plan with them. Maybe just getting in for free, or maybe having some <laughs> big scheme totally to get rid of Parker forever. <laughs> um, and then the other part of this, <laughs> right? I mean, you know, they they had a plan, but that plan didn't quite work out, so they they salvaged it. <laughs>
2: You know, we've all had that significant other of our friends who we really can't stand and, and wish wasn't in the picture, but <laughs> what you guys are talking about is some next-level shit in terms of how <laughs> elaborate of a plan somebody would go oh, through it's... to not have to hang out with their friend's <laughs> girlfriend. I mean, but... <laughs> we're,
0: we're, we're still at the tip of the iceberg. It gets okay. okay. <laughs>
2: um,
0: so one thing we know about the character of Joe is that he seems to kind of hate Parker. Uh, he's polite about it. Uh, well, but he, not always polite about it. Not, yeah, <laughs> not always. <laughs> but he's not like overtly, uh, you know, uh, constantly yelling at her or anything. But yeah, he doesn't seem to like her. He really kind of wishes that it was just him and Dan again. They've been best buds for a long time.
1: Okay, so they get on the lift, and it's here that we can start to see, like, the real friction between Parker and Joe specifically, but also between Parker and Dan. (laughs) There's friction between all of them and Parker. Right, right. (laughs) It kind of seems like nobody likes Parker. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) it's true. Their first ride on the ski lift, like, Joe
0: clearly has one goal And it is to freak out
1: Parker on the ski lift. Oh, yeah. He wants her to be scared of that ski lift. He keeps jumping up and down. They're just going to bully her a bunch as they they go up the ski lift. So she takes a cigarette and starts smoking. And Joe just gives her, like, the most passive-aggressive grilling ever. Like, he launches off on a speech about, yeah, cigarettes are just gross, especially in the cold. They stick to you. You smell like an old ashtray, an old man's used floss. (laughs) And then Dan kind of defends her by asking for a drag
2: (laughs) of the cigarette and blowing it in Joe's face, but not really. I love where you're you're going with this because when you're directing actors, what I like to do is just start off by having a meeting and just talking all about the character and hearing what the actor's interpretation is from what they read. And this was one of the very few times in my career where what the actor read was not what I realized I had written at all. Uh and Because the first thing that Kevin Zegers said to me was, well, clearly Dan is going to break up with Parker at the end of the day. And I was (laughs) like, wait, what? (laughs) And when he explained why he felt that way, it made a lot of sense. And I said, I want you to play the character that way, but don't don't tell Emma that. And I'm not yeah. going to tell her that because <laughs> she thinks the fact that you are now bringing her along for the thing that you do with your best friend, that you're trying to integrate the two worlds because this is it. Like you're getting really serious about her. And so I want her to keep thinking that, but you play it that you're kind of doing this to prove to yourself. She just doesn't fit in your world. Like mm-hmm. it's, yeah. she's a great girl, but it's it's not going to go the distance And because of that, it was confusing Emma Bell, the actress playing Parker, a lot. And so if you ever watch it again, knowing that those were the motivations, you'll see how in her face, she's very confused sometimes by how he's acting Mm -hmm. or the way he's saying things, because it's not what she expects from him. And even the fact that he jumps and kind of volunteers himself to go first Kevin Zegers looked at that as an act of cowardice, where he was so scared, he just, he couldn't stay there anymore. And he just wanted off. Uh, So it's interesting that that's where your theory is starting, because that is true. And uh, that isn't something that was ever discussed or put forward in the film itself. That was something just between us. This is so, great. I'm, I'm in. I'm in. <laughs> I mean, that's it's just a testament to these actors.
1: Like I really like the actors in this movie. I think they do yeah. a great job. I'm a particular fan of Sean Ashmore. I think he's amazing. The original Animorph Sean Ashmore. Dan is played by Kevin Zegers, and Parker is played by Emma Bell. But uh, I think that they really brought these feelings through without directly speaking them. <laughs> Again, I'm very
2: happy to hear that. This movie only worked if they played these characters as realistic as possible Mm -hmm. and did things that real people would do. A lot of times people in the audience kind of become superheroes when (laughs) they're watching a movie. Oh, I would just do this or that. And when Frozen was released in theaters, my TV series, Holliston, which I star in, had not yet come out. And so most people had no idea what I looked like or anything. So I Mm -hmm. could... Sit there. I think I went to three or four screenings that opening weekend and just sat behind the biggest group of people I could find and just listened. And it's just amazing how people are like, oh, I would just, I would use my ski pole to vault to the next chair (laughs) or uh, I would, Oh, that's easy. I would just jump upside down and spin my skis like a helicopter. And they're, they're serious or they keep yelling, just jump. And then when he jumps and it doesn't go well, they're like, you idiot. This is so stupid. Why would he jump? So, uh, and, and then in the end after they've like, they're like sweating, they cried at a certain point and they're just, you know, exhausted. And then they stand up and go, that fucking sucked. Like, what? wait, <laughs> it, it, it did all the things that you thought it was going to do. Oh, like, no. what? <laughs> <laughs> um, but when it's a a survival thriller like this, and mm-hmm. anything reality based, there's a defense mechanism that kicks in with people where they have to keep defiantly saying this couldn't really happen this couldn't really happen because it could really happen and it has happened Mm -hmm. and they hate that like because that's scary so they they have to shut it down (laughs) so it's uh it's it's an amazing experience doing something like this and i'm anxious to do it again someday yeah that would be great Parker
1: just, you know, casually says, "Hey, do you guys know when we're going to get back cuz I got like 2 weeks worth of chapters to read." And then Joe says, "Oh, come on. She broke the first rule." And Dan turns to her and says, Parker, you broke the first rule. <laughs> he doesn't even try to like defend her or downplay the situation. They're both just ganging up on her. She says, what? And Dan explains, you can't talk about real life shit while we're up here. The whole point of being here is to forget about all that shit, relax, enjoy ourselves, and deal with that stuff when we get home.
0: So, I mean, I do think that is an important point because like they're saying that we came up here to leave it all behind, right? To just get away and pretend that our former lives don't exist maybe even fake our deaths and never return to them
2: <laughs>
0: oh. <laughs> maybe <laughs> who knows so back to the character of Joe just kind of knowing a little bit about who he is while he does seem nice and friendly we do know that he has a violent side uh, he's got toward a temper the beginning of the film and also I think another point throughout the film he says I was about a second away from kicking that guy's ass so we do know that he kind of jumps to extreme measures, even if he doesn't actually do them. But of course, we believe that he is capable of doing something very extreme.
2: Right. I saw that I was a second away from kicking that guy's ass, more of a trying to save face because right. the like, guy right, yeah. clearly <laughs> could have killed him. And so... <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, no, that, that could be, could be. But like, like Leif said, he does resort to this phrase of, I was about to kick that guy's ass, like, a couple times in this movie. One when, like you said, the, um, the, the girl's ex-boyfriend confronts him, and then later on when he's kind of, uh, he opens up to Parker and he tells the story of the jock that kind of stole his girlfriend, he says, I was just about to kick that guy's ass, right? So, I mean, he, he jumps to that, uh, that conclusion pretty quick. So they, they, they go out, they ski, they come back, they come back to the cafeteria,
0: Torvald, do you want to tell us a little bit about this cafeteria scene? I call it cafeteria scene part one because later on, Joe tells us a little bit about another
1: cafeteria scene.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So
1: it's interesting because we cut right into the middle of a conversation between Joe and Lynch. And it sounds like Dan at this point is agreeing with Joe and saying, oh, we should totally do that. Yeah. We'll go to chemo, killington, just oh. we'll go up north, killington. get oh, away that for sounds a while. Bad. I know, <laughs> Killington. What a sinister place. And then Joe agrees and says, yeah, let's do it. Christmas, you and me. And the dance says, deal. <laughs> so they agree on something. Something yeah. sinister. I mean, they're, they're, <laughs> they're going to get out of here. Going to get out of here and do something. We don't know how or mm-hmm. when or
0: where. It's going to last until Christmas, whatever it is.
1: After that... Joe starts talking about how lame it is skiing with Parker. He says, I'd like to do an actual run before we leave tonight. Parker overhears it. She honestly takes it really well. And it's just like, yeah, okay. These boys want to have some alone time without me and offers to go back to the lodge. Now, to me, this is actually the, the key of the whole theory right here. I agree. Both of them jump at not right. letting her go back both to the of them, lodge.
0: Joe, who clearly <laughs> hates her, and Dan, he who kind of hates her. <laughs>
1: it seems like both of them want some alone time. Like, yeah. both of them want some guy she time. She comes over, so she detects no that.
0: She says, okay, you can have your alone time. And both of them immediately just jump on her
1: saying, no, 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 you have to come with us. <laughs> Uh Uh-huh. And not only that, but then she's like, well, at least give me the key to the locker so I can check my messages. And Dan refuses to give it to her. He specifically says, no, you don't need to check your messages. It'll just be your mom complaining. He won't let her access her phone. Right. (laughs) Uh, What what reason could he possibly
0: have for that? Like when they did want alone time and she's offering to give them alone time, why does he not want her to
1: check her messages and why do they want her to come with them? Exactly, and they're back at the lodge having some food. What else do you do other than grab your phone out of your locker and check your messages? (laughs) This
0: was a plot by these two
1: to fake their own deaths and kill Parker. (laughs) They're basically forcing her to come on the ski lift one more time late at night and not letting her access her phone. Seems a little sinister, right?
2: (laughs) Um... The cell phone is obviously like the worst thing to happen for horror movies ever because uh, uh, (laughs) even though it annoys every audience member when you, they point out why the phone is not an option, either, you know, no bars, there's no service, we lost it, whatever it is, you have to explain it away because there are people who are like, you know, just, just call as if suddenly all your problems in a horror movie would be solved. (laughs) If you could only call somebody Right. with this, the one thing that we had going for us was that, On the actual mountain, uh, which we shot it in Utah at Snow Basin, there was no service when you were on the mountain. So most people that we saw skiing and that we met throughout our month, month and a half that we were there, left their phones in their lockers unless they were going to be listening to music or something. You're just risking losing it or breaking it by bringing it because it wasn't going to work anyway. But knowing that a good portion of people who would end up seeing the movie had probably never gone skiing before and wouldn't know any of that, we had to explain the phones. So what I did was just, you know, they're they're going skiing for the day. That's the point is to get outside and unplug and disconnect. So that's why they don't bring their phones. Of course, we could have done the moment of a character holding their phone out and being like, oh, I have no service. (laughs) Right. I think there was even a draft where one of them did bring their phone and they drop it. And at one point it starts ringing, but they Uh, can't get to it. Oh, man. Heartbreaking. (laughs) It was so much easier to just explain, no, that's the whole point of this. Like, just leave the phone in your locker. And it served as a good... Character development thing, when Dan talks about the way her mother is, a portion that got cut out where he says, just the other day, she called asking what we want for Christmas dinner or something like that four months away and she and her mom needs to know what we want to eat like that's something my mother does constantly like oh you're going to be coming home next year for for whatever oh well what do you want to eat i could make this or that like mom is six months away i don't care i don't know but um so it was like a kind of a cute moment between them but ultimately with any movie you know you want to get to the peril as quickly as you can like you know set, set it up appropriately But just, you know, get to it. So it was all about getting that chair to stop and start their nightmare as soon Mm. as possible. So uh, that, that whole bit had to go.
0: Well, I mean, and, and speaking of peril, I do just want to say that we we like, really love this movie. Like, I think it, in the subgenre of contained thrillers, like where you get stuck in one place, there are several of them. But I think Frozen is, like, by far the the best of all of them.
2: Yeah, that means a lot. It really does because this was a something I had thought of all the way back to when I used to go skiing when I was in high school, and I eventually stopped because I realized, this is ridiculous, like strapping your legs to wooden boards and sliding down <laughs> is dangerous. a mountain. And then you wonder why people get injured. I never was that good at skiing. I was okay by the time I stopped. But in Massachusetts, where the film is supposed to take place, the mountains that I grew up skiing at, one of them was called Wachusett. And they were only open on the weekends because there just wasn't really the business. It was a smaller mountain. And there was one time where I ended up going up myself for one more run. And the lift chairs, they stop all the time. And it's not like they come on a loudspeaker and explain why it stopped or tell you when it's going to start again. Usually it just means somebody fell getting off up at the top or maybe getting on at the bottom. So they had to stop it just temporarily. But the point is the chair stopped. And then your mind starts to run and <laughs> you start thinking about all the horrible things. <laughs> yeah. And I was probably only stopped for less than five minutes, but it felt like five hours because there was no one in f- on the chairs in front of me. No one behind me. It's like nighttime. I know they're about to close soon. And I'm oh, in my mind, I'm like, they must do a head count when all the kids get back on the bus. Like someone's going to know that I didn't get on the bus, right? Like someone's going to know. And but the panic that starts to set in because you're like, I could be here for five days before like this, you know. And of course, there there are safety precautions to make sure that doesn't happen. However, if you Google it, you'll see there have been times where human error plays a part in things. In fact, the weekend that the movie opened, one of the reviews that said once you can get past the ridiculous premise that a ski mountain could let this happen And then it happened in, I think it was in Russia. And the way the guy was saved was he was lighting his money on fire and throwing it up in the air and somebody saw it. But he had severe hypothermia and the combination of human error, a storm coming in, and there happens to be wolves when the mountain is closed that are adventurous enough to come out. That would really only happen in a movie. But (laughs) that's the other thing too. It's a movie. Right, yeah. People are okay with... Iron Man flying around or King Kong fighting Godzilla. But when it's something like this that plays on real fears and emotions, people get really defensive and right. it's like, this could never happen in a million years. It wouldn't happen. And so when the movie premiered at Sundance, which is, you know, park right. city, that's the skiing town. exactly, yeah. You could tell, who in the audience worked at the ski mountains (laughs) because they were sitting there with their arms crossed before the movie started. (laughs) And afterwards, I would ask them, shoot holes in this all the time. They'd say, this would never happen at our mountain. We're so safe. We have this (laughs) safety measure, this safety measure. And then I would say... Okay, well, what about the mountain across the street? And they're like, oh, fuck that place. That, it would totally happen there. So, <laughs> it was such a, a fun experience doing all that. All right. So they convince
1: Parker to go with them for one last run, even though it's pitch black. The weather's getting bad. Everyone else is going back into the lodge. She doesn't even want to ski more. Right. Like they bump into Shannon again, the girl who Joe uh, met earlier. And Joe kind of sort of flirts with her a little more and eventually gets up the courage to ask her for her number. Unfortunately, he doesn't have his phone or a pen with him. So he just asks her to tell it to him and he keeps repeating it to himself. He's, he's trying to remember her number. He wants to memorize it. Now I think that this is the one part of their entire scheme that they hadn't planned on. Joe didn't know that he was going to meet a hot girl that he wanted to hook up with. So he didn't have a pen. He didn't have a phone. So he thinks on his feet and he's like, I'm going to have to remember this number. I'm going to have to remember it for a few days while we carry out the rest of our plot. So he spends the rest of the movie repeating this number to himself. Well, they're sitting there freezing, while well, they're starving, Well, his best friend falls out, breaks his leg, gets eaten by wolves. I certainly wouldn't be thinking about the, the hot girl that I just met. He's not repeating it like in a crazy way, like he's losing his mind and starting crack. It's like he just really wants to remember it, right? Right, because he knows he's <laughs> not going to this... die. He's going to survive this. Exactly. <laughs> this is, in my opinion, the biggest proof that Joe specifically knows, he knows they are not going to die. He he He's not even considering that they're going to die because he planned this. And then, so this is the big event that really starts the main crisis of this movie. They are trying to convince the operator to let them back on the lift for one last run. The operator says, it's not about the money. we got weather coming in. We've got to clear the mountain. There's nothing I can do. But they tell him they're going to be real fast. So they finally get on. Right. And then the operator gets called in to work next weekend. So he says, I gotta go talk to my boss about this. I can't work next weekend. He tells his replacement, there's three more on the way down. Wait for them and it's all set. There was three more people on the way down. And also the three on the way up that he planned to strand there, (laughs) right? Like this is his job and he doesn't seem like incompetent. He definitely knew that there were three people who hadn't come down and three people who were on the way up who also hadn't come down. (laughs) So (laughs) I think he's going along with their plan. (laughs) He didn't make a mistake here. He told the replacement about the three who were skiing down and not the three who were going to die. Totally.
0: (laughs) So the guy shuts down the ski lift for the night and then he leaves, right? And it's supposed to be like, oh, it was all a big misunderstanding and that's why they're trapped up here. Of course,
1: we say otherwise. They're sitting there, the lights go out. It starts to dawn on them that, you know, oh no, we're stuck and we're gonna be stuck for at least the weekend, maybe even a whole week until next weekend.
0: So they're, they're stuck on the ski lift and then, oh, this snowcat drives up driven by a man named Cody and they're throwing their stuff at the snowcat and it's hitting the window and he just ignores it and he gets a call and he's like, oh, I'm not supposed to be here and he leaves. Now, maybe this is just to establish tension, which it does very well. Um, it does. But I believe that this snowcat driver is also in on it and I have a few pieces yes. of evidence to support oh, this. Oh, he's definitely in on it. Yeah. Just you it. <laughs> <laughs> First of all, there's no way he doesn't see them throwing those things. He is ignoring them. No. The, their, their stuff hits his roof. <laughs> like, he couldn't not have noticed. So, uh, and also, uh, here's the thing. We know for a fact, based on his conversation on the radio, he's actually not where he's supposed to be. He literally went exactly. out of his way to go somewhere he's not supposed to be because he's part of this scheme. Now, in order Not for just this... somewhere
1: he's not supposed to be, but literally directly under the ski lift with three people stuck on it. Right. What are the odds, <laughs> uh-huh. right? And so he was there for a reason. But, you know, it
0: does establish a lot of tension. It's great. But I believe that he had a moment, maybe a moment we didn't quite see, where he leaves some stuff hidden in the snow, some stuff that will be important later on. Perhaps fake blood, ripped clothes that will help them to fake their deaths. Now, well, oh, this is totally ridiculous, right? Oh, it's so, yeah. Okay, okay. But wait a minute. Who plays the snowcat driver Kane Hodder. You don't cast Kane mm-hmm. Hodder as no one. You cast him as a bad no. guy, right? And so Kane I think never that a good is guy. a clue that we were given that this guy is part of the scheme itself. Right. This is Victor freaking Crowley. <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> shout out to Kane Hodder. It is his birthday today well, at the time of recording.
2: It is. 73 <laughs> years old. Crazy. Oh, wow, right? man. No, I'm just kidding. He's not that old. I just, I just I so he's say, like to say, I have no idea. What? He looks pretty good for an 88-year- old old man right Uh, yeah (laughs) um okay it's it's okay wait wow there's a lot to unpack here okay (laughs) first of all (laughs) you know at at this point I've heard so I've never heard this one that you guys are saying but when people are like these characters are so stupid they should have started throwing their stuff immediately but remember they think he's there for them they're celebrating when they see him and they're saying yeah and they're waving and they're yelling and they're they're cheering and And in reality
1: he is there for them because he's working with
2: uh, (laughs) with (laughs) he's he's actually going to pick up one of the other operators at the top and then is told no he's already at the bottom so he didn't even need to go so he's frustrated and he turns around to leave And only once he starts backing up do they realize, wait a minute, he's leaving. He doesn't see us. And that's when they start throwing their stuff. Unfortunately, he's already looking the other way. He does stop at one point, though, when he hears something hit the snowcat. And he looks and then keeps backing up. Now, when you're inside one of those, it is so loud. That's true. Like, uh, But now, the way I shot it, it was very simple. He just pulls up, he stops, they're celebrating, thinking he's there to help them. Then he gets that call and he just turns around and drives away. My editor, Ed Marks, created that moment using footage from like before we started rolling, or not rolling, but before we were, I had said action. Because, you know, you roll sound, you roll Mm -hmm. camera, and then you say action. But there are those few seconds. And he found a moment where Kane had checked behind him and then looked forward again and then there was a moment where it was a shot from inside the snowcat looking past him as he's turned around and one of the skis looked like it could have potentially hit the front of the snowcat even though it was nowhere near it (laughs) and so when i came in to editing the next day ed was like here watch this And he created that moment of him starting to back up, one of them throwing their ski, Mm -hmm. the ski bouncing off the front, and him stopping to look forward again. So you almost think there's hope for a second. But that Ed, my editor, he's the one who did that. And, And I just loved it. I was like, oh, that's like one more fuck you to these guys. Like, they right. came so yeah. close to to, <laughs> to getting them.
0: Regardless of how you interpret the scene, I will say it is a very good scene. And it does exactly what you say. Like, it creates hope and it creates tension and then it takes it away, which is what makes this movie so brutal and so fun.
2: You know, the theme of the movie is you have to find a way to keep going, even mm-hmm. when all hope is lost. And... Like real life, you have these moments of hope, and then sometimes they're dashed again, but, you know, you keep moving forward. And Parker's arc, above all, she is very much helpless, but she gets stronger and stronger. And there's a moment where she just can't hold it anymore and pees in her pants. And it's a very, like, just sad and humiliating Thing for a human being to go through, but you right. her Emma's performance there, the way you see the demeanor on her face change after that, and the anger and like that fight to keep going after that just dehumanizing moment, she comes so far yeah from when you meet her to the end where she's just somehow pulling herself down that mountain onto the road. I love characters like that in movies when you yeah. see the average Joe, so to speak find that in them. And you'd like to hope that all of us have that in us somewhere, you know?
0: Yeah. And I do love the the themes of this movie, like how it's a contained thriller, but like, in a way, it's kind of like a coming of age. Like she's, she's forced to wear the kitty helmet at the beginning. Then like we all have to do, she has to claw and drag herself into adulthood and take care of herself, despite how, you know, afraid she may
1: be.
2: And I think it's really right. good at that. Yes. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Well, and I
1: just want to mention that this also supports our theory, what we're talking about right now, because one of the main things that the two boys and especially uh, Joe wanted to accomplish is he wanted to humiliate her which you can see by him forcing her to wear that helmet and then making fun of her while she does it. And she keeps asking, can I take off this helmet? And he's like, no, no, keep it on, and then makes fun of her some more,
2: (laughs) right? (laughs) You know, (laughs) know, that's (laughs) it's all part of his plan. That was intended to show that they're actually nice guys and they're being responsible. (laughs) Like, okay, I I guess we'll Well, go with you.
1: (laughs) It's at this point where they've lost all hope, or at least drained all hope from Parker, that Dan decides that it's a good idea to try and jump down. He talks to both of them before he jumps down, like, you know, kind of says his goodbyes or whatever just in case. But the last one he talks to is not his girlfriend. It's not Parker. It's Joe. He talks to Parker, and then he looks at Joe, and he looks Joe in the eyes... As he jumps off. I think he's showing which of the two people in the ski lift he cares more about. He cares about his bro. He cares about his bud. He wants to ditch his girlfriend. (laughs) And then Dan says, I know I told you I'd done this before. I lied. And then he jumps. And his legs break. Yeah. So how do you think he managed to fall so far without actually breaking his legs okay. it was a really long oh drop.
0: yeah 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 well yeah right right he would break his legs no he wouldn't let's fast forward to the end of the movie when parker does mm-hmm. the same thing that's the very first thing they try to escape and then at the end of the movie it's the thing that works to escape mm-hmm. like they were trying to put that in their head right at the very beginning and parker said you can't do this to escape because they know that's the but one you way can. you can escape they probably tested it out. They've been to this resort before. I think the movie kind of has the rationalization, like, oh, when Parker jumps, the ski lift is breaking, it's dangling by a thread, and she's also hanging down by her arms, so she's like maybe a couple feet lower. You see how he broke his legs? If those were actually broken like that, it doesn't matter if you're a couple feet lower. right? Compound fracture, like, well, r- r- but like, well, like, let's just, let's just think about this for a second, Right. What did Dan and Joe want? They want her to think she can't jump out. Well, how do they show that?
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: They did this to freak her out so that even from way high above, she
1: can look down and say, I'm not going to do that. Joe and Dan specifically, both of them talk about how the cable is razor sharp and so difficult to climb across. How do they know that? Exactly how even if it was, I don't know how much could they about possibly like know? steel
0: rope, but like
1: I would not assume that it's razor sharp. The fact that they both say it and then Joe does it. He tries to climb across just enough to get his hands all ripped up and bloody and then shows them to Parker. <laughs> I think that they're putting the idea in her mind that you cannot get across this cable. You yeah, are stuck, you're stuck here. here.
2: <laughs> what they showed us at the mountain was even with a chain trying to slide on those cables, it would, it would cut through it. Okay. And Mythbusters actually did an episode where they tried to do it with clothing and the clothing came, uh, started to rip. Yeah. Wow. So our stunt guy, Chester, who did that stunt of climbing kind of halfway out, And then back, like what Lynch does, Uh um, we had to make special gloves that had metal on the insides of them and just so he could go out those few feet. Now, he had a safety cable, which we digitally removed, that went from the bottom of the chair to one of his legs. But if he had really fallen, he probably would have just... Fallen. Like, right. I don't think that cable did much of <laughs> oh, anything. Geez. And that guy was in such amazing physical shape because uh-huh. you got to remember, those clothes are super heavy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think the boots we had him wear were fake ski boots. So they weren't very heavy because we also established that Lynch is a skier. The yeah. other two are snowboarders. Right. And that's why at the end, Lynch just sits down on the snowboard and tries to sled down the mountain, because people are like, if this guy's such an avid snowboarder, why didn't he just click his boots into it and snowboard away? He's not a snowboarder, Mm -hmm. and he didn't have the right boots for that. But again, a lot of people, if you don't ski, you don't know that. Right, yeah.
0: Well, the next big hurdle that our theory has to overcome is the broken legs. So let's talk about the broken Mm -hmm. legs. So this is a compound fracture, and it looks really bad. But I want to point out, The main character of this movie is Parker. We are in Parker's perspective. And when he jumps down, he tells them, everything that we as an audience see. He says, I broke my leg. Parker asks, how bad is it? Implying that she can't see what we saw, that it's really bad. And Dan says, it's bad. It's really bad. The bone is sticking out of my leg. I think that what we're seeing here is Parker's imagination of what happened. We are seeing her perspective (laughs) that this is, this is how she imagines what happened to Dan. And that's why she's
1: freaking out so much. When in reality, when he said he's done it before, but he says, I lied. He 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 means the opposite. He means like I've done this before, and I'm an expert. It was a self-referential statement.
0: He, he was I lying about the statement I lied. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> wow, this guys playing playing four-dimensional chess with himself. <laughs> well, I mean, that's why Joe just gives him a look. Like, what are you even doing, man? Just jump. <laughs> <laughs>
0: But I do believe that, like I said, the snow cat person left some like fake blood and stuff that he could squirt around. I don't think he actually broke his legs, but I do think that there was some material there that he could use uh, to uh, later on, especially when the wolves show up to fake his own death.
1: And I just want to mention that this is supported by the fact that the camera never leaves Parker's perception of the world through the entire movie. Earlier in the cafeteria, we only start to hear uh, Dan and Joe's conversation when Parker walks up to them and can hear them. Uh, later in the movie, when Joe uh, skis away, we don't see what happens to him because the camera stays with Parker. It never leaves her. It's all showing her perception, like you said.
2: Well, there there are some moments uh, I, I would agree with you. And that was the intent. Like any movie, uh, there has to be some sort of character whose eyes were seeing this story in this world through or experiencing it through, I should say. And uh, there is a moment early on when they send her to go uh, try to bribe the chair operator. Oh, Obviously, right, yeah. she screws it all up and ends up basically paying almost full price for them mm. anyway. <laughs> um, but uh, that was sort of just kind of foreshadowing that, our group does not have the greatest luck Um, (laughs) and things that they try to do don't usually work out. Um, But there is a moment where we hang back with them and that's where we establish that, uh, that Dan hasn't been much fun anymore ever since having a serious girlfriend, which at that age, you know, like sort of the college uh, young Mm twenties, that is a thing between both uh, groups of male friends and female friends. When people start, you know, growing up and partnering up and, you're the one left on the sideline. It, it sucks. There's a couple little moments like that, but but overall, uh, with Frozen, Parker is definitely the main character, uh, even though it's an ensemble. Okay. So I, I can agree with that, but okay, cool. uh, I again, this all still has to go back to the fact that this is how badly that these guys didn't want to hang out with <laughs> right. this girl <they're> <laughs> that they did all of this. <laughs> <laughs> Which I think is just I mean, amazing. So. It, it's just about
1: wait, to get well, even we worse. We can prove that. We can, <laughs> we can tell you exactly why.
0: <laughs> it's about to get even more ridiculous. Uh, it, our theory is, I mean, because this is
1: when the wolves show up. We believe these wolves are trained. As Dan gets quote-unquote eaten by these wolves... Funny, I don't remember seeing him getting eaten. No, 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 you don't see him get eaten, and neither did Parker. Joe specifically grabs Parker's head as she looks down and turns it towards him... Pulls her away from looking at Dan. As Dan is screaming, don't let her watch. Don't "Don't (laughs) you let her look. (laughs) Right. Like Dan's giving Joe the signal that their magic act is about to take place. He's going to pull a disappearing act and she needs to not be looking. Joe obliges and pulls her head away and puts two hands on either side of her face and forces her to stare him in the eyes until the wolves and Dan are all gone. The more we talk about this, the more I actually respect these people. Like, they are amazing.
0: What an amazing magic act they came up with. At this point, Dan gets eaten, in air quotes. Uh, but actually, I believe that he gets up, walks away. He joins the snowcat driver who actually stayed close by, and they just drive down the mountain.
2: I'm going to play along here. So if that was the case, though, was Dan already, like, friendly with these wolves?
0: Yeah, Dan and Joe had hung out with them. Right, they're trained.
2: <laughs> <laughs> okay, all right.
0: <laughs> now, they, they do even point out, one of them says, how many wolf attacks are there in New England? Why is this in there unless it is a clue left by, you know, our genius director telling us that uh, his purpose (laughs) was to show us that this wolf attack is a little bit fishy and we should look a little closer into it. Mm
2: -hmm. (laughs) Well, um, in in real life, uh, there have been very, very, very few wolf attacks in New England because normally wolves are kind of cowardly animals. There was one that we found where I want to say it was Okimo in Vermont, but I, again, I don't remember, but, uh, there was something that had happened where a wolf kind of got aggressive with a, I think it was a kid and the kid, uh, scared the wolf away by just swinging his snowboard and the wolf ultimately left them alone. But gray wolves are almost non-existent in New England. And for the last, I think maybe 30 years or so, they've been trying to reintroduce them and bring them back to that area but it it is incredibly rare that something like that would happen especially right. to the same group of people who <laughs> mistakenly lucky
1: group of people
2: <laughs> yeah and that's where i always try to remind people it's not a documentary it's a movie <laughs> oh. and uh at one point the producers wanted to say inspired by true events because separately Uh, you could say it was like, it has happened that people have been forgotten. Yeah. I was very much against that though, because it, it wasn't inspired by true events. Like it's the, it's one of those, what would you do type scenarios? It's just a survival thriller and it plays on very real emotions of heights, claustrophobia, isolation. That was the extent of the realism for me. So uh, thankfully, they didn't do that because, you know, once a movie is acquired, it's not up to you what the poster is going to be, what what quotes yeah. they're going to use on it. I actually had a lot of problems with the poster for Frozen because mm-hmm. it, it looks cool and it's eye-catching, but some simple things that they could have fixed. One is that the chair is on the wrong side of the lift. Um, yeah, it is. Let's also take into account that they're about six miles up from the ground. But okay, yeah. the other is that for some reason they added a belt to Lynch's character. If he had oh, yeah. a belt, he could have gotten fucking down. And I'm <laughs> like, right. I'm like, wow. if if anything, just take the belt off. Like yeah. you added that. Why did you Why? add it? Oh, it just looks good. I'm like, okay, oh. but there's problems with it. So that always frustrated me because... That is
0: infuriating.
2: I can hear it. I can hear people... Uh, I never really heard it, but I can hear right. people in the lobby who saw the trailer looking at the poster and yeah. saying, you can't make a movie with three people in a chair. This is the stupidest idea for a movie ever. And look, he's got a fucking belt on. Right. Why didn't he just use the belt?
0: I did have a, a just like a little making of question. Uh, did you use wolves or did you use trained dogs that looked like wolves?
2: Those are wolves. There was one... That was a mix. It was half wolf, half maybe German Shepherd or something, Mm -hmm. but you don't see him in the movie. That was, his name was Mister. So Sled Reynolds, who was the trainer, Sled did Dances with Wolves. He did Narnia. Like he's like the wolf guy. And I learned so much about wolves working on this movie. And Sled and his team were so generous with all of us with the amount of information they shared with us. Even like the very first day, he was like, if I tell you that, one of my animals can do something, then they can do it and they will do it. If I tell you they can't, that's the end of it. That's the answer. And wolves are not like dogs. You can't just train them to do all these tricks and stuff. They're only motivated by hunger and that's it. So unless there's food in it for them, they're not doing it. Like one of the rules was not to make eye contact with them because there's the potential for one of them taking that as a challenge. The cast had to be really quiet when we were shooting the scenes with Sean and Emma in the air above them, because if they notice something above them, they'll be too scared and they won't do anything. Mm -hmm. Uh Mister was supposed to do the bit where he runs at Ashmore and grabs onto his arm and knocks him down. Yeah. And Mister unfortunately passed away right before we started filming. So we didn't find out. Because uh, we were already, I think, two weeks into filming when Sled and his team got to Utah with the Wolves. And that's when we found out Mr. had passed away, which was incredibly sad because, I mean, that was his you know, personal yeah. dog, too. Yeah, and he said, so these are the options. He was like, we could try to color the hair of one of these other dogs we have, or there's this other dog that we have named Dart who is incredibly well-trained, who, you know, if we give him the command, he will go flying at him and take him down and it'll be great. And I was like, okay, well then there we go. That's the answer. And there everyone's kind of looking at me. I'm like, what's wrong with Dart? And like, Dart's a border collie. Yeah. I'm like, how, how <laughs> yeah. is this going to work? He's like, well, if you shoot it from the right angle. <laughs> yeah. And that's what we ended up doing. It's a border collie that goes running at Lance. Uh-huh. And Kane Hotter and I going back to the first hatchet, we love to pull pranks on people on set. And we're very immature, we shouldn't do it, and we certainly shouldn't be in charge of things, but somehow we are. (laughs) So we saw a great opportunity to mess with Ashmore. Kane went into Sean's trailer as the stunt coordinator and said, did you see the dog that Green wants you to wrestle with? It's part wolf, part mastiff, he's like, I've never seen, oh, I've never seen an animal this big. Oh no. He goes, Personally, I wouldn't do it. And, and I'm not comfortable with this, but it's your call. <laughs> and Sean's just looking at him like, oh shit. And Kane goes, Listen, <laughs> when you see the dog, if you're not comfortable in any way, you just give me a look and I'll call it and say, no, we're not doing this. And Sean's <laughs> like, Thank you. Thank you so much. So Kane leaves and then I go in and I'm like, it should be fine. I kept saying should with everything. (laughs) And I'm like, but listen, if for any reason, when you see this dog, you don't want to do it, just give me a look and I'll, (laughs) I'll just say no. And he's like, all right, cool. And Kane's outside laughing and I'm laughing. And so the moment comes and they bring out this big cage and you can see the terror in Sean's (laughs) face. And so all of a sudden you hear him go, Kane. Kane. And, and Kane just won't look at him. And <laughs> finally, Kane kind of gives him a glance and Sean starts nodding up and down like, uh. and Kane just gives him a thumbs up and goes back to looking at his phone. And then Sean's oh like, gosh. wait, I'm like, all right, here we go. Let's roll sound. And Sean's like, green, green, Can- green. And I'm like, giving them the thumbs up. And he's like, oh shit. And they open the door and this little border collie comes running out (laughs) and everyone starts laughing and clapping. And then the border collie beat the living shit out of him. This border collie was so aggressive and so into it. And this thing could fly through the snow. It's like it didn't even need to touch the ground. It moved so fast. And eventually Sean was like give me one of the real wolves because I can't take this anymore. (laughs) Sean Ashmore in real life, whatever you're hoping he would be like, that's what he's like. He's just the nicest, sweetest. You can't say enough good things about him. So I kind of felt bad messing with him (laughs) like that. But if there was one person on that set that could take it and find it funny, it was him. And he was such a good sport about it. So, yeah. But that's the the story of the wolves. That is great. (laughs) That's that's an amazing amazing story.
1: (laughs) Oh, nice to hear you know, kind of a, a complicated uh, prank planned within this movie about a big complicated
2: prank. <laughs> I just revealed myself to yeah. now, yeah. you. Showed you us your true
0: <laughs> so the wolves have, in air quotes, eaten Dan. And that brings us to the cafeteria scene, part two. Do you want to talk about that, Torvald?
1: So it's at this point that. It feels like Joe finally opens up to Parker and Joe tells her about his one serious girlfriend that he's ever had. I'm actually really glad you're here, Adam, because I really wanted to talk to you about this scene in particular, which I feel makes this theory for me. Okay. In his story, he dumped his only girlfriend and Parker's surprised by this. She's like, what? You dumped her? He says, yeah, we were in a cafeteria. We were talking and I was facing a wall. I was facing her. She was facing everyone behind me. And he says, I kept seeing her like, you know, looking at somebody like, you know, kind of laughing. And I was just like, you know, what's so funny? You know, I was like, what the hell is going on? And she said, this guy, Dean, he's making fun of you. So I turn around and I'm just ready to beat the shit out of this guy. And he's like, all I can see are these faces, these random people. This guy was making eyes at my girl and could see me, but I couldn't see him. And then Parker says, that's messed up. And he says, I never felt so stupid. I just walked out. She says, you just walked out? He says, yeah, I just, I told her to laugh it up with Dean, the frat guy. I was out. Maybe I shouldn't have been so quick to walk away, you know? Maybe I should have had a thicker skin, been not been such a sensitive bitch. Sometimes I feel like I was just insecure. Maybe I screwed up. And then she says, what happened to the girl? And he says, she's dating Dean, the frat guy. Now, this is really important because... What other scene in this movie happens in a cafeteria? The scene where they're hatching this plan, but more importantly, he plays the same role in that scene as he did in his horror story about, you know, his emotional trauma. He's talking to his best friend,, mm-hmm. the guy who he cares about, you know, they're bros, they're in it together for life, and something he doesn't know is happening behind him, which is Parker, Parker walking him. up yeah. behind him, right? And his best friend keeps looking at Parker instead of him. And then Parker walks up and makes him look stupid, right? Mm-hmm. He never felt so stupid. He just wants to walk out of there, right? right? And she is dating his best friend, Dan, <laughs> just like Dean, the frat guy, ended up dating his girlfriend who was looking at him. Right? Yeah. <laughs> right? It's the exact same story. And I think this could not be a coincidence. This oh. is purposefully written. <laughs> he is telling the story of what happened in the cafeteria no, yeah, just a few absolutely minutes ago. It <laughs> has to be not us twisting anything like the obvious parallel. This is the most evidence we have for this entire theory. He's basically saying, you took away my bro, my best friend, right? Like, just like the story where that, you know, Dean the frat guy took away my girlfriend. You are taking away my best bro. And then in the story, he says, maybe I should have turned around and beat the shit out of this guy, right? Mm -hmm. Like he's saying, I'm not going to let it happen again. This time I'm going to beat the shit out of you Parker. I'm I'm going to make you pay. You're not going to get my best friend. I'm going to change things this time, right? I think this shows
0: Joe's absolute genius. He manages to tell mm-hmm. this story and yet does it in a way where he's getting parker to sympathize with him well right?
2: okay wait though i mean from what you guys are saying w- uh, this plan this big elaborate plan to not hang out with someone's girlfriend <laughs> would have been would have been hatched long before that moment right, right. in the in the lodge so. no definitely
1: and he just yeah. used that moment like this is him telling her right like he is making it clear to her why they're doing this, because she's taking away his friend. And he's just using that scene to illustrate it, right? He's using the whole cafeteria <laughs> thing. He's showing every time you're around, I feel humiliated, and I feel like my friend is leaving me, so I want you gone, <laughs> right? <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> <laughs> to me, those two, his story and that scene I, are so similar. <laughs> I, mean, I just can't see it any other way. <laughs>
0: when when Torvald first pitched this uh, this theory to me, at first I was like, "No way!" But then we got to this point in the theory, and I was like, "I don't know. Maybe there's something to this."
2: <laughs> I mean, um, I, I, oh, okay. Well, my intention with <laughs> that that story. <laughs> You know, okay. look at this last year. How many times did you or other people you know kind of rethink their lives over this last right, right, year yeah, of the yeah. pandemic? And you start second-guessing all your choices. Like, did I pick the right career? Like, what would have happened if I had stayed? Like, you just sort of do when when you're faced with your own mortality. And, you know, it was a very hard year for everybody. Mm-hmm. But so now that he's in this position, he's, of course you know, second-guessing his own life choices. And when she asks, why aren't you dating anybody? And that one thing hurt him enough to just not be willing to take that chance anymore. That story and the story that he tells about how he first met Dan, Mm -hmm. that Dan couldn't stop crying in first grade and had to... Both of those are from my real life. Like, my best friend from childhood. That's how we met. He couldn't stop crying for some reason. And when the teacher said, is there, do you know anyone in the class you want to sit with? He picked me and I had never seen him before in my life. (laughs) And we ended up becoming best friends. And then the cafeteria story, my childhood sweetheart, like we were together forever since we were little, little kids. And then halfway through college, there was just some guy that was you just, you you know, when some dude's out to bang your girlfriend, yeah. the moment yeah. you meet him and this guy was just all about it and I knew it. And, and then when that moment happened where he could see me, I, cause I didn't know what he looked like and I couldn't see him. And I'm just, you you feel so defenseless and stupid and small that like, he could have been five feet away from me. I wouldn't know. But those moments really are just meant to ground the characters and make them even more three-dimensional, which cuz i remember at one point the producers said the moment he says do you want to hear another story our response was no 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 more stories like get show more wolves get more stuff going <laughs> and i was like i get it but you've also seen this 50 times and mm-hmm. um the average person is going to see it once and i feel at this point we've earned the right to get to know these people even more yeah. and uh and i think the audience will appreciate that cuz they're in it at this point with these characters. They're real. I just wanted them to feel as real as possible and have real experiences. And um, and the more specific you can be when you're writing something like that, the more the audience will connect with it. Parker's story that her first fear was, who's going to take care of my dog if yeah. I die? Yeah, that, one's cool. um, that, that was really good. That was very human. That was her audition piece. And I don't really love flying and it's something... No one really tells you when you pick this as a career how much flying you're going to be doing with appearances, film festivals. And every time a plane hits turbulence, my hmm. first thought is my dog, Arwen, that was the audition piece. And Emma Bell was the very first person to come in and audition. And she did that speech and she's crying. I'm crying. The casting director's crying. And she leaves and I'm like, her, she's the girl. And the producers are like, oh, whoa, 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 like, okay, you can't cast the first person <laughs> to walk in the door, and five more weeks of auditions, and uh-huh. in the end, it was her. Yeah. She set the bar so high because she's just a, she's real. It was like I had met her before I wrote it or something. She was so perfect from the moment I saw her, and um, and I'm so proud of her too. And I love that in that movie, with the credits, it says, "And introducing Emma Bell," because she went from that to final destination five to the walking Mm -hmm. dead to dallas like um and that that was like her first real role and that uh directors that i look up to like frank darabont that he at some point had watched it and was like yeah she's the right one for the walking dead the worst direction i've ever given an actor was on frozen i just I don't, I was too excited or whatever, but it came out I said, and Emma, and she says, yeah, because okay, the way to speak to them, Sean had a walkie talkie in his coat and I was below them on the ground. Uh-huh. And so I would speak into the walkie and you, they would hear my voice through Sean's coat. And I said, uh, okay, Sean, blah, blah, blah for the next take. And Emma, um, um, more better. (laughs) What the fuck is that? What kind of direction is that? And she never let me forget that one. So not my, more better, not my (laughs) finest moment of direction. Pay, hey, but it worked, right? You know yeah, you got the performance. <laughs> she was like, that's what I needed to hear.
1: <laughs> that, that must uh. have been really challenging, directing them through a walkie-talkie, though, with them, like, way 50 feet up in the air. It
2: was, but they were so good and so committed, and we all did the work before getting to that point, and so there was never a question of what's my motivation here but I also had a pact with them that since they couldn't get down or go to the bathroom or anything that I wouldn't go to the bathroom either. And I wouldn't (laughs) eat or drink. And so I always stayed where they could see me. And, you know, I talk about that, like I'm some sort of hero. They were like, Go to the bathroom. We don't care. We eat. Have like we don't care. And I'm like, no, I'm in it with you. And they're like, and I could hear them because they're mic. They're like, why is he doing this? I really don't give a shit if he eats or drinks. It doesn't. It doesn't help us at all. No. I'm, but I'm like, I'm doing it. Oh. And I always had a different type of chocolate for Emma. Any of the nights that she had to cry when she would get off the chair, because they had to ride it, chairlifts don't move backwards, or at least mm-hmm. this one didn't. Mm-hmm. So when we would wrap, they had 45 more minutes where they had to go all the way up to the top yeah. and around again. Oh, man. And any <laughs> night that I made her cry, I mean, not like I made her cry, but I just, her character had to right, cry. Right, right, right. I would have a different type of chocolate waiting for her because she loved chocolate. And in the beginning, I didn't realize how many nights I was going to, put her through it and how many different types of chocolate I would need to find in Eden Utah <laughs> in the middle of winter and I I swear to god by the last night there was no more chocolate left that I would have been able to find and you still be it. changing it up you sampled yeah. every
1: chocolate in Utah <laughs> every kind yeah. honestly I'm I'm really jealous the people that you've worked with like Amabel Sean Ashmore Kane Hodder and in in the Hatchet franchise, you worked with Danielle Harris, Tony Todd. Like I'm I'm legitimately jealous.
2: You know, I'm still just a fan. You know, and it I always am stopping and being like, "This is so fucking cool." That's <laughs> Candyman, is. and that's <laughs> yep. I'm like, um, and there's just such wonderful people, and I'm so lucky because you know, what if, what if they had been assholes? What if they had been <laughs> awful yeah. people? Oh. Um, And with my TV series, Holliston, the fact that I write roles for these people where they play terrible versions of themselves <laughs> and that they're so game to do it, like Danielle Harris being addicted to Vicodin and making me go get teeth pulled so I'll give her my pills. And like, <laughs> you know, it's, it's obviously she's nothing like that in her life and right. she wouldn't do it. Um, yeah. You just need to give them a chance. And I think you get pigeonholed when you end up playing a villain in a horror movie that becomes iconic. And then that's how everyone sees you. Like Robert England will always be Freddy. And yeah, yeah. everyone thinks of it. Tony Todd has done so many incredible roles and incredible films, but mm-hmm. he, people just think of him it's, as Candyman. He's
1: always Candyman. Yep.
2: Yeah. It's his voice. But when you give him a chance to actually do comedy in front of an audience on a sitcom and watch him shine the way he did it's just it's just great and i hope i hope more people do that and give them chances to do things that they're not known for i mean kane was jason he was the guy in the faceless mask who just Mm -hmm. you know we all loved the best of all the guys in the faceless mask. and um giving him emotional roles to play or comedy or uh and letting people see that this guy is an actor. Uh it's I'm just so lucky that they trust me the way that they they have. Definitely. I agree.
0: Back to the um Uh I think the next part of our theory is when Joe manages to get down and then the wolves attack him as we already talked about a little bit. These wolves jump at him and of course we're saying that these wolves are trained by Joe. Now, There is one brief shot where Joe says, stay back. And then you get a shot of the wolves and they actually jump back. And I think that's just a tiny little proof that, hey, these guys are well-trained. They knew Joe. He says stay back. Like, he's just acting for Parker's benefit. But they just jump back because they hear their master say stay back. And then uh, when he hits one, it yelps, you know, like, oh, I just (laughs) got hit by my master. And then when he he sleds away, they follow him just like a trained dog would follow their master. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) But this brings us to another important point for our theory is that We don't see Joe or Dan die. Both of them die off screen. And while we do see a body later, like, you know, that could have been some meat that he threw together, right? It's some meat that the dogs are eating. Uh, That's their reward uh, with some ripped clothes, you know? Maybe this.
2: Or or maybe they murdered somebody (laughs) earlier. Yeah, maybe. That's (laughs) how badly they. I mean, at this point, fuck it. They're going so far. You might as well go all the way, right?
1: Okay. I just wanted to mention the fact that we don't see them die, I think is is important because this is an Adam Green movie, right? Like have you ever seen Hatchet? <laughs> Hatchet 2? <too? Hatchet? laughs> like the deaths in those movies are so over the top, right? The fact that this is a horror movie, an Adam Green horror movie, and what's the, the kill count in this movie? Zero. We never see a death. I think that's important, right? Like, that is it true. would never happen unless Adam Green is trying to tell us these
2: two boys did not die, right? <laughs> Originally, it was sort of designed that Frozen was going to be put out by Overture, which is no longer in business, but Overture was the theatrical arm of Stars Corporation. And then there was Anchor Bay, which was more of their home video with limited theatricals. And uh, Overture was going out of business, and no, they weren't admitting that yet. We didn't know it. Oh. But when they first saw the movie, one of their comments was, you know, the movie just didn't go there. And we were like, how so? And they said, when you hear from the producer of Saw and the director of Hatchet, <laughs> you know, you want one thing and it yes. just, it's not. And we're like, well, it's not, it's a survival thriller. It's not a slasher movie and they just like, I was like, something's not right here. Why why are they even saying that? And then it turns out, oh, because they have no more money and they're done, Mm -hmm. Um, but they don't want to say that. So, um, but they tested the movie and we were against that. We were like, unless you're going to test this with an audience of people (laughs) that ski, then don't bother because otherwise it's going to be a discussion about skiing. And why don't you just test the materials, test the trailer, (laughs) test the poster. And no, they tested it and they tested it in Chatsworth where there's never been snow and no one in the audience had ever been skiing. And uh, some of the comments and they take all of them seriously. And these are like career test audiences. They go every week because it's free Mm -hmm. and they'll watch anything and then complain about it afterwards. And <laughs> oh, no. one of the comments was, Bitch didn't get a titty out. <laughs> oh, <laughs> and,
1: my gosh.
2: and I'm like, okay, obviously you immediately throw that one in the trash. <laughs> but yeah. I think there was an actual conversation. Like, did you maybe shoot something? Or, what? <laughs> oh like, my gosh. Already there's people that are like, why don't they zip their coats all the way up over their mouths? Like, <laughs> right. the, okay, do you wanna watch that movie? Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just shut up and leave it to us. Like, um, yes, they probably could have gotten their coats up a little bit more or they could they're like, I would have just kept my face in my hands the entire time. Okay. It's a movie though. Like at some point, don't you want to see the actors act? Don't you want to see them speak? Um, and also <laughs> to, uh, not that you could expect people to realize it, but the, once we started hitting them with the hail and the snow, most of which was real, we were just fortunate. Um, the zippers were frozen anyway. So, cause in between takes, they would try to zip it up just to warm up and it, they would only go so far. So, um, but that's not something you can really stop and explain in a movie. Like, I wish I could zip this up further, but because it's it's gotten (laughs) wet and frozen, it will only go this far. Like (laughs) that would be some great and very
1: useful exposition there. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, That's, That's about it for the movie. She gets to a road, the car stops, a guy gets out, picks her up and says, hold on, I'm taking you to a hospital. And it closes as she kind of looks out the window and closes her eyes and it fades to black and that's it. Okay, okay.
0: We seem crazy, right? We just twisted this whole story around something that no one would think. The biggest problem with this theory is that this is an almost cartoonishly nefarious plan, right? Like, these two are, <laughs> yeah, so. are diabolical villains, you know? The tone of Frozen, I think, is actually fairly kind of down to earth. Our crazy plan that these guys had that we're saying does kind of conflict with that tone, and that's kind of where you might be like, no, there's no way. That plan is just too weird. But this movie is in the same universe as the Hatchet series. Yeah. So let's look at the universe of Hatchet, which I think gives this theory a lot more uh, credibility. So in Hatchet 2, Danielle Harris manages to get away from Victor Crowley, who was attacking her from the previous film. She meets Tony Todd, who is just an amazing actor. I love Tony Todd. She walks into a shop. One thing I have to point out about this scene, and actually one of the best parts of Hatchet 2, Danielle Harris... Next to Tony Todd, she looks like a tiny little rag doll. Like, she is so short and he is so tall. Like, you see Tony mm-hmm. Todd standing next to, to Victor Crowley, next to Kane Hodder. He makes Kane Hodder look like a normal-sized person. Like, I did not realize Tony mm-hmm. Todd big was so huge. Sorry, That's not important. So she walks into his shop. And on the TV, there's a news broadcast playing. And we see Emma Bell, that's the actor, but it's Parker from the movie Frozen, it says that uh, she, basically that she has settled her lawsuit with the ski resort. And she's also saying, I'll never go skiing again.
1: That's it. That's all she says. It's a very, like, it's one second of, of uh, film. So let's look at some characters in the Hatchet franchise. Just
0: what you kind of universe are we dealing with? So there's a guy in the first Hatchet movie who pretends that he is a film producer and he hires actors who are women, and he pays them to essentially just take off their clothes and he films it on just like a handheld video camera. And he has this scheme where it turns out he's giving everyone a false name. He's not a movie producer. He's like, I forget what, like an accountant or something. And he's actually just getting these actors to do this for him for his own private porn collection oh no (laughs) that's not a good idea even in like 2006 when this was made there was still free porn on the internet he's paying these actors that's a terrible idea you might as well make a movie
1: and 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 sell it you know (laughs) is you're getting something that's free you're paying for it and you're committing a crime while you're doing it. <laughs> like, it's the worst idea right. So what uh, he has, a really harebrained scheme, and it doesn't make a lot of
0: sense. Oh, that sounds kind of familiar. <laughs> yeah, it sounds a lot Dan like
1: the movie we just talked about.
0: Right. And so if we look at the universe as a whole, this is a universe where there are psychotic, strange people who have hairbrained, crazy schemes. And Dan and Joe are two of those people in that
2: universe. Um well that is a those are some great lengths to go to not hang out with your friend's girlfriend. Mm-hmm. I, I will say Well
0: we, we have one more piece of evidence and that is since we mentioned hatchet The biggest problem here is, okay, so, I mean, we've proven that clearly these two people didn't die, but where's the, like, the real proof? Clearly, Do we (laughs) we ever (laughs) see one of them uh, alive again? Well, in Hatchet 2, there is a very brief little scene in a montage of Victor Crowley killing people. One of the people killed is Sean Ashmore in a little cameo. And since it's a shared universe, and we're not given another name for him. We have to assume that this is Joe. He faked his <laughs> right. death. He decided it has to be. He, he rethought his life, just like you said, thought of all his regrets, decided, I'm going to start a new life. He decided to move down to Florida, be a gator hunter, and unfortunately mm-hmm. got killed by Victor Crowley. I just don't see any other explanation unless, you know, Joe has an identical twin, but what are the odds of that?
2: <laughs> well, right. a, he, d- he does. I know. And, uh, <laughs> identical twin. Um, but... I think this is where your theory uh falls apart because the montage is about the past. Like yeah, it if, is true. And so he would have been dead before Frozen happened. So it would have to have been Aaron Ashmore playing Joe Lynch on the chair. Um incidentally, the real Joe Lynch is also in that montage and he gets his jaw pulled off. Uh, so you have Sean Ashmore who oh, played wow. Joe Lynch. Oh. Um and that's how uh little effort i put into naming a lot of characters it's just my yeah. friends names like it's cuz usually it's temporary i'm always thinking i'll i'll go in and change that to a different name but for now i'm just going to use my friends names and then it ends up sticking and then you end up doing a podcast with joe lynch for 8 years and yep. now when people watch frozen it's so weird it's like it's not just lynch or joe it's literally joe lynch really like you couldn't come up with <laughs> something better like- yeah okay. <laughs> That is a crazy theory. And I do have films that are purposely made to make people think and come up with uh, bits and pieces for themselves. Like with Spiral, we never show the inside of his bathroom that he's afraid to go into. And with Digging Up the Marrow, there's purposely things that we don't answer about Decker's son. And this is the part that's usually so much fun as the filmmaker is hearing the creative things that people come up with and what they think it could have been. And so with this, it wasn't intended uh, to make people wonder the things that you guys are wondering, which is why <laughs> yeah. I love this. I love your imaginations. I think this is amazing. Thank you. I can't wait to share it with the cast. Um, whenever this comes out. I, I really like, hope you do. <laughs> I definitely believe me. I will. Um, there's something about this movie where every few years, it sort of comes around again in popularity and, mm. Just I think last month or February, it was like the number two movie on Hulu for a few days. And it's not like anyone was promoting it or it just sort of happened because word of mouth again, I guess. And it's great to see that keep happening and that recently on the Movie Crypt on my podcast, we have a, a fairly new segment called The Unpopular Opinion where Joe or I will make a, pretty brash statement and do a little like rant about it. And the first one that I did, the statement was movies are dead because everything has become like free or next to it. And you have these streaming platforms that just have hundreds or thousands of titles and they're just these thumbnails. And when something isn't on the front page of new releases or whatever, it may as well not even exist. To, yeah. some, to a lot of people. And it's sad to see that happen. How many times have you, like before bed, opened up Netflix and never wound up watching anything? You just scrolled mm-hmm. for 20 minutes and then fell asleep. Like, yep. so they just don't, it doesn't feel like they mean what they used to mean. So when you hear something like this and that you guys put this much thought into something, it completely... Uh, annihilates my theory and and which is great because i don't want my theory to be true and um (laughs) it's especially right now with the pandemic hopefully ending and life starting to come back and all these productions starting to get going again you find yourself thinking man is it still worth going through this Mm -hmm. when you're just going to be a thumbnail for a few weeks and then maybe forgotten and um you guys reminded me that it is very much worth it. And uh, and I really, really appreciate it. And I'm very glad that I that I did this. So uh, I will certainly share this. And uh, I don't want to completely shoot down your theory, but... Uh, <laughs> no, go it, for it if you want. <laughs> okay. <laughs> your, your, your theory is wrong. <laughs> 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 but very interesting. Very interesting. Our hearts were in the right place. Thank point. you. <laughs> yes. Yes. Well, and your imaginations are great. And I hope you guys are writing... Your own stuff that I get to see someday.
0: We're so grateful that you came on and talked to us. And you're so nice to listen to
1: our theory. No, seriously. Thank you so much for being here. It really means a lot to both of us. I
0: personally feel that, like, I mean, your inspirations may have been like, like you said, Frank Darabont or George Romero, but I think the upcoming uh, filmmakers, especially in horror, are going to say eventually, you know, Adam Green was was my inspiration.
2: To, to those people, I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> <in all times. laughs> Uh, uh, may I suggest James Wan? Uh, <laughs> um, but th- thank you guys a lot. I really do appreciate you taking the time to talk about Frozen and and all of the thought that you put into it. It's it's fantastic. Our call to action for you,
1: dear listeners, is. Now that you've heard this theory, now, you, now that you know what Frozen is about, go watch the movie. Rent it, buy it. We, we leave a link to the movie in the description of every single episode. So click that link, watch the movie, and you'll see for yourself that this theory is not just a theory. This is how the movie is. It's <laughs> clear as day. Yes. Go watch the movie and, and you'll know. <laughs> Absolutely. So thank you so much for listening. Music for this
0: episode was provided by Christine. If you like our podcast, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe
1: on whatever platform you get your podcasts. Since you're the guest, if if you would like to play us out,
2: the floor is yours. Thank you guys for listening. And remember, the popcorn isn't real.